The Water Values Podcast, Session 116. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Well, welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, this is Dave McGimsey, and we have a great panel for you today. Uh, normally at the end of the year, what I do is just a little five to ten minute wrap-up of kind of my observations from the year in water, but I thought I'd try a little something different this year. Uh, so I reached out to a couple folks uh, around the country that are um, significant figures in the water industry and occupy different positions in various sectors of the water industry, and I... I thought I'd get their perceptions on uh, how 2017 shaped up and maybe some uh, projections for 2018. And so we have a great panel for you. We've got Charles Fishman, uh, author of The Big Thirst and uh, noted journalist. We have Cindy Wallace-Lage, president of Black & Veatch's Global Water Operations. And we have Jeff Keitlinger, the general manager of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. So thank you all uh, for coming on. If I gave you a a proper introduction to each one of you, we we wouldn't have time uh, to to really dig in and uh, talk about anything of substance. So uh, if, if you want to find out more about each of our great panelists, we'll have links to their bios or information about them on the show notes for this, which you can find at the Water Values podcast or thewatervalues.com. So uh, to, to start off, first off, welcome to each of you. Uh, thanks so much for sharing some of your time with us, especially around this busy time of year. Happy to be here. Great. Uh, Thank you. you. You bet, Jeff. And um, uh, so... My first question, Charles, I'm going to pose it to you, and that is I'd, I'd like to get, you know, from someone who, who kind of looks at the entire water industry uh, from a journalist's perspective, what, what, what did 27 hold, 2017 hold for you uh, in terms of, uh, of what the big water stories were? If you're looking at it from, a, from the point of view, to me, of the public, I think this was the year that... Um, water and water issues and water impact and its connection to climate change really cracked through um, consciousness of ordinary Americans. We, we started the year with um, flooding in California uh, so badly that 200,000 people had to be evacuated of the Oroville Dam, the, the hazard that the Oroville Dam might give way, that was sort of, you know, a, a miniature crisis all on its own. It did not become a major disaster, but but it could have. Um, that was sort of the intersection of too much water and, um, and uh, infrastructure. Uh, we had uh, the hurricanes, the flooding of Houston, the flooding of Miami, um, uh, and the flooding of West Florida, too. I grew up in Miami. The downtown streets of Miami were literally turned into rivers. Uh, uh, Houston was completely overwhelmed. So we, we certainly had the experience of too much water um, and, and in, in historic sort of epic ways all in the same year. And then we've had these terrible fires in California, um, and I, Jeff 
is is living through this, so I don't want to speak. I'm I'm watching from afar, but the fires are literally unmanageable, and they are epic, and they follow the um, they they follow flooding that happened in the same calendar year, and so we're having this incredible ping ponging of we. The drought in California ended. It ended as droughts often seem to, with a wild excess of precipitation that itself was dangerous and damaging, followed by, I, I think, the driest summer in recorded history in California, or one of the driest. So everything bloomed, then everything wilted, then everything caught fire, and places are burning that have never burned. And and so um, what what to me, what it adds up to is a, a wake-up call, and, and I think Americans are paying attention, like, wow, this stuff has never happened. If climate change is going to have an impact on the way we live, this is what it looks like. And so, I, to me, it feels like all of this, um, uh, what we think of in ordinary terms as natural disasters, they're all weather-related. They're all climate-related in some ways, and they all have an impact on are we managing the available water right, and are we ready for the future, both in terms of water supply and in terms of how we manage, you know, are the homes built in the right places in terms of dry times and wet times? Do we, do we have the infrastructure we need to manage what, the water's going to look like not yesterday, but tomorrow and for the next 50 years. You mentioned California in there a couple of times. Jeff, since you're in California, can I get your, your take on, on the water situation out in California? Sure. Thank you, David. Uh, so at Metropolitan, we import the water for Southern California, and it comes from two places, the Colorado River and Northern California. And those two sources make up about 55 to sometimes 60% of all the water consumed in Southern California. So incredibly important. Uh, that's the water supply for 19 million people in the six county service area that Metropolitan serves uh, in Ventura in the north to San Diego in the south, Los Angeles, Orange County, Riverside, San Bernardino. So we've had an incredible period of time here and our governor has been talking about climate change and the, and the havoc it's wreaking on our system. The 2014-15 period, we had the highest temperatures ever recorded in California, uh, the lowest snowpack that we've ever seen. In fact, lowest in recorded history, and looking at the tree ring record, it was somewhere there was another low one uh, com comparable about 500 years ago, but the lowest in 500 years snowpack. Uh, that resulted in the lowest ever allocation of water. Uh, we, we thought the worst amount of water we've ever received from the state project and that was built into our planning was 400,000 acre feet. In 2014-15, we received 100,000 acre feet, uh, the lowest amount of water that that project had ever produced. We turned that, we followed that right around, went into the very next year, and um, as Charles was talking about, we had record-breaking, uh, shattering uh, flooding. We had the wettest January on record in the entire history. We had the highest amount of precipitation over 90 inches. Uh, the previous record was 1983. We had the most snow ever recorded in a single month in January. And Oroville Dam had to release the more water in 
more water out of its spillway in February than it ever had in any single year previous. That resulted, of course, in eventually that system failing. So our infrastructure is being stressed. We're having wildfires in December, uh, which is unheard of. Our fire season used to end in October. It's now year-round. So we are seeing on the ground real impacts of climate change. And we get wet water, but we get it all at once. So our infrastructure is going to have to be resilient to deal with this new, new reality. So, so the, on the infrastructure issue, that that's that seems to me to be a, a pretty key thing. We hear a lot about it. So, Cindy, from from your perspective at Black and Veatch, uh, what what do you see in terms of how infrastructure uh, is used to adapt to climate change and and how it is being stressed uh, with with how climate change is 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 impacting us? And and because I'm trying to do this as a as a kind of year end 2017. I, I'd really, I'd really like to see, hear your thoughts on on what has happened in 2017 to to you know attack this question of, of infrastructure resilience, as Jeff put it. Yeah, great, great conversation and great comments, and I think both Jeff and Charles have highlighted the the changing dynamics and the extremes of which we are trying to put our infrastructure in place to be able to manage. And I think it comes back to. Charles asked the question, do we have the right infrastructure? Do, are we planning for today and tomorrow? And I think that those extremes, that range that we have to be able to serve is really causing us challenges. And, and challenges because we're having changes in conservation driving, different types of characteristics um, and how we're trying to manage water, where the water is needed, um, understanding how we're utilizing the water, or the assets that we have, some are stranded. Some are inefficient. Some we don't have enough capacity. And so it, it is placing a lot of stress and strain. And I think it's identifying that maybe that history isn't our best indicator of where we need to go forward with our infrastructure, that we need to attack this in a more holistic manner and that we need to look at how we're going to manage through the stress and strain of, of climate change and having an, an existing place and understanding that it has a ripple effect. Right, it's it's dealing with the water supply, but it's also how it impacts other infrastructure. For example, the fires and the challenges they had that impacted the energy supply, having problems with the transformers and the and the power lines, which then we could no longer pump water, which therefore we had challenges getting water to where we needed it. So it wasn't even the lack of supply; we couldn't move it. And and, and how are we looking broadly at our infrastructure to understand those touch points? Because that's where you can also have a breakdown in, in our overall system. So I think we do have to look at our infrastructure, and we need to have that integrated approach, right? We need to understand we're in a new normal. We have a lot of unpredictability. It's that unpredictability in an economic standpoint. It's the climate. It's, it's social, what people are expecting what, and what they're aware of and the education that we have. Uh, and then we need to understand that we need to look at this very holistically and understand how we're managing all, all of our water, the drinking water, wastewater, stormwater, reclaimed water, and pulling those all together to have a, a best solution. Because that's going to how we're, we're going to manage some of this stress and train, strain. Because we, we can't look at just having treatment plants and not look at the dams. And we can't look at the dams and not look at the tunnels or pipelines or store other storage basins and how are we dealing with our, our aquifer storage. And, and there's all of these pieces, but we tend to be very siloed in our 
approach. And so I think when I look at 2017 and how we're dealing with infrastructure, I think that the change that I'm hearing is a more integrated planning approach to be more holistic and broad and looking at that best for community type of approach. So looking across what's needed here, because as been highlighted, water is local, right? And so we're having challenges in the east that are very different from challenges in the west, which are different from the south. And so we, we don't have the opportunity to have a broad brush solution. We're going to have to look at each of those and find out what are, what are the scenarios that we need to plan for and then how elastic can we make that infrastructure and that elasticity is going to come from how we utilize an integrated approach and being able to use all of our assets and then understand we may need some different types of assets as well as getting much more uh, comfortable with data analytics and, and utilizing that data to tell us where we have capacity and how we're going to manage on a, in a, um, in a faster, more real-time approach. So I don't, we're not there. So the gap is we're not there, but I think we're having conversations that are suggesting that we need to look at it differently, and, and that's a real positive. Now we need to figure out how we're going to move, because we haven't moved. That's the broken record, right? We're not doing anything uh, to the level or at the rate we need to to improve our infrastructure. So let me, um, David, can I just jump in? Because what Sydney, Cindy said really sparked something. It reminded me of something. I mean, the to me, in some ways, the story of the last five years, and, and, and Cindy and Jeff really have frontline experience with this, but it feels to me like the story of the last five years is the most progressive communities, the most progressive water systems have moved to this idea of one water. And if you, if you put your storm water and your water supply and your water treatment all in the same pot, you, you, you start to manage all of them differently. You know, the, the storm water becomes an asset rather than the burden rather than a burden, the, 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 um, and, and the wastewater becomes an asset rather than a burden. And you think about recycling and reuse, and you think about what you take out of the water and whether you can use that. We aren't that far along in that process, although, although I think um, uh, Jeff at the, uh, in, in Southern California, those guys are pushing hard into that space. Some places are a little further along. A lot of places still have completely separate departments. But I think the leap that Cindy is talking about, the integrated approach across everything, goes much beyond water. And that's, that's where we're really going to be, need to be and need to be. So I, I got to spend, um, uh, four days in Charleston, South Carolina, um, just a month ago. And Charleston is experiencing flooding in a way it never has in settled history. They have, they used to have 20 to 25 flood events a year. They have more than 50 a year now, one a week. And this isn't kind of charming, oh, look, down by the battery, it's a little damp. This is water up on the main thoroughfares of the city of Charleston in such a way that people can't get where they need to go. I, I met a woman who works at the College of Charleston whose, whose kids are in school, young kids in school, and she said, I have to watch 
the weather and the tides because I can get separated from the kids. It can be either I can't get them to school or I can't get them from school. And Charleston is hiring a, um, a chief resiliency officer. And you can, I actually have some relatives who live in Charleston who sort of rolled their eyes like, great, that's just what we need, a chief resiliency officer. But in fact, that's exactly what Charleston needs. And they're positioning the role, that role in city government in exactly the right way, exactly what Cindy was talking about. If you're going to solve the water problems in Charleston, you need to think about planning and zoning and where things get built. And is stuff built in places where it's going to turn out that it shouldn't be? And how do you adjust the landscape of the city to accommodate as, as I, I loved what you said, Cindy, we, history isn't the best indicator. That's the world water people have lived in. If I have a hundred years of data, I know what's going to happen next year. And, and that's actually been smart and it's taken good care of us but that's not going to work anymore. And so to have somebody in, the, in, in a city like Charleston, whose job is to talk to the water utility, talk to the stormwater people, talk to the planning people, talk to the real estate people, they're talking about developing new kinds of zoning and new kinds of transferable development rights in Charleston so that they can move the development to the safe parts and start reimagining the city so that the flooding doesn't ruin the place. And you can't, the stormwater people don't have the power to do that. And even if storm, waste, and water supply are all in one, that person, you know, a, a, an uber water person, somewhat like Jeff, that person can't do it. You need connections across the entire infrastructure and the entire community, and you also need to worry about you know, fire, rescue, all that stuff. And so, I, Cindy, I loved what you said, and I think I, the way I go about my work in terms of water is finding examples and trying to say, here's, here's what works, you know, try this, think, think in these terms. And I, just to add, add to that, and, and that's a great example, and Charleston has been incredible in their approach to try and address the resiliency uh, needs that they have. And, and, and part of it, when we think about getting acceptance within uh, communities, whether, you know, it is the constituents in the community, but the political level, some of this is changing our language. You know, when I think about we haven't moved the needle in infrastructure, why haven't we? Well, part of it, we've become a broken record. We just keep we keep putting out the doom and gloom, right, that it's failing, it's failing, we have to do something, as opposed to flipping that to discuss the opportunity, the opportunity for communities to truly have economic growth, to, to head-on hit this resilience that's going to allow them to be able to keep growing when there is stress and strain on their community, to see how to bring green infrastructure in, to understand the opportunities to look at alternative types of, of uh, financing. It, it's essentially how do we create a dialogue that prioritizes water because of its influence into the success of a community, right? I mean, we, we've seen where it has, where there has been failure in communities to address 
and prioritizes water, and the devastation is significant. So how we change that to understand how we're driving sustainable, resilient communities by prioritizing water and then showing how that can work, like you said, finding examples, that's going to have more power than going in and the woe is us, we've got all of this failure of infrastructure, you just got to give us some money. We're not, we're not making our case right in some cases. That you're exactly right. The positive case is if we want an economically vibrant community, we can't, we can't have flooded streets and we got to right. think, and, and, and you can't, I mean, I don't know, Jeff, you tell us, is that, do you get to that point in the conversation in Southern California? Do people connect a, a really smart water system with a really vibrant economy? They, they are starting to. Uh, one of the benefits of drought is that it does sharpen the attention. We went through uh, the steepest uh, drought in California history up until this incredibly wet year, and it definitely sharpened the attention of the public. Uh, we, we went from a public that was relatively indifferent. They, they trusted us utilities to deliver water and, and have the taps ready whenever they needed it to the point where they became very engaged. We we put together money for turf replacement, you know, typical type of drought actions, and we budgeted $40 million for it. We ended up going through $400 million, and, and I was incredibly proud of our board of directors. They said, you know what, we're getting this record-breaking response. We don't want to stop now. Uh, uh, we understand we can't afford to do this every year, but we had a lot of money set aside for buying water, and the public said we want to change our landscape instead, and we – spent $400 million on it and removed over 170 million square feet of, of turf replaced with California native plants. And that kind of public reaction uh, caught us off guard, but it was breathtaking. And the public is starting to understand that we're living in climate change. We're going to have more rain, less snow. We're going to have to build a more nimble system, and, and we're going to not be able to take water for as granted as we used to. A painful conversation for a utility that wants to always be reliable, but we've been telling the public uh, a little more honestly, uh, we're, we're in a precarious situation here, and you know we're living in a changing world, and we're going to have to invest in things differently, and we're getting traction on that. I love that. I love that response. I thought that that just shows you that when it's all positioned right, the public is in. They will help us. They will help water people do the right thing, and they will help their communities do the right thing. And they'll drive the political will, right? Because that becomes the other disconnect we have uh, of politics. And, and then as we're looking at the prioritization and what we need to do in communities. So if we can get, as Jeff had noted, and getting that social swell uh, that we want as a focus on to water and that prioritization and, and what it does for community, then it helps us overcome the political challenges that we have in four-year cycles of people not wanting to do certain things because they want to get reelected. This this brings up a point that I remember, Charles, you, a couple of years ago, I heard you speak and, and you said, when's the last time a utility hired someone from, you know, take, your, take a Fortune 500 company, when did a utility hire a marketing person to drive that message? Uh, and so I, I'm kind of curious, you know, Jeff, how do, how do you get the messaging out at, uh, at, in, in Southern California? We try all the usual tools, and it's hard to reach people on an issue that, you know, on infrastructure. It's not the most sexy issue. But uh, one of the things we found was in the 
drought, the, the news teams wanted to be part of it. So we certainly do our own outreach, and you know, we, we spend five, six million dollars on TV and radio, which is a relatively small amount in the media market as big as Southern California, Los Angeles region. But what we had was the news teams wanted to run with it. They knew the public was interested in drought. Uh, you know, all the polling showed it was, the, you know, a top five issue in the public's mind because they heard it on the news, they heard it on the radio. But what really helped drive it was uh, the personal commitment of our governor. Uh, Jerry Brown spoke on the drought repeatedly. He came down and spoke to my board. You know, it was all covered by the local news and media. And when you have, have your state's top elected saying, this is a crisis, climate change is real, we need the public to engage, uh, that drove it more than any other media outreach we could do. Uh, it really took his personal uh, investment in this that, to really help drive the story. In terms of, of, of how we do a better job of, of bringing the, the issues we've, we're, we're talking about here to the attention of the public and getting buy-in, I mean, uh, Cindy, you're the one, I think, that, that really hammered this um, in, in the earlier part of the conversation. Have you seen any strategies that work that allow this to, to move forward, you know, to, to raise uh, the issue of infrastructure and the investment needed to provide that clean, safe drinking water to treat the wastewater or anything like that. What, what have you seen out there that works? I think what we have been working towards, uh, it's been with the U.S. Water Alliance, who has really been focused on driving a, a campaign that has been the value of water, but then tying into that, we have a, an annual Imagine a Day Without Water. And some people look at that as, oh, you're so extreme that that's not going to attract. But actually, it does. It does attract a lot of attention. And we take that, you know, getting outside of our water sector community. So we talk to ourselves, but how do we talk in a language that's going to be impactful other places? So having campaigns and, and, and working with schools and the churches and businesses and really working through those people that are going to be impacted and helping them understand by putting it into a language that shows its value, right? So we're not talking about all the science and the technology. We've got that. We need to help people have a confidence and get back to saying this is a priority for us. And, and we are seeing an impact, I believe, in an understanding of what infrastructure does for a community and its value by putting it into a visual and then substantiating that with this is what we're doing to try and make sure that you never have to imagine that day. And this is why this investment is important in your community. And letting that tailor, as I mentioned earlier, letting that tailor to the individual communities. Because, again, broad brushing water when it's so local and the, and the needs are very different in various regions, then you lose your message because you can't get granular enough. And so I think as we can provide that framework and provide that uh, base understanding of why infrastructure matters at the local levels, that that's when you start to make a difference. Right. And so, Charles, what are your thoughts on on getting the message out? Well, I, <laughs> I, I'm a little I would say I'm a little conflicted. I think the point Jeff makes is is really important. There's no substitute for leadership. Um, and and reporters um, uh, in the in the current world, reporters are are as overtaxed as everybody. There's you know there's local newspapers have half the number of people they had 
10 years ago covering the news. And so the story needs to be crisp, clear, and easy on a moment-to-moment basis. And so the governor, the mayor, the chairman of the county commission, going out and doing something to me is is really important. But but also I think, and and look, there's no the the the, the, the kinds of events that um, Cindy's talking about. I think those do get attention, and they also they also meet people where they where they live often, especially. Um, school kids and parents of school kids, but um, I, I think one thing I think is that water utilities and public officials and water people can help the press coverage, which I think is 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 the in some ways the best way of getting at people by by connecting the dots for people. You know, I think if you if you are in Norfolk, if you are in New York City, if you're in Miami and and you're managing the water system or you're managing the planning department, being able to say to a reporter, come drive around with me for an hour and I'll show you how uh high tide, excess rain and the and and you know, the value of real estate and the ability to do business are all connected, right? If, 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 and I, I apologize, I can't keep the names of all the hurricanes straight, but if the hurricane that flooded Miami while hitting the complete opposite side of Florida had actually hit the east coast of Florida, we might now be talking about, um, the, the big home insurers pulling out of Florida, saying we can't afford to insure a million homes in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, if they're going to be wiped out every 25 years, somebody else do it. And if, you know, one of the things we've seen in Flint, one of the lessons of Flint that doesn't get talked about that much is three years on, 80% of the homes in Flint that have a lead water problem haven't been repaired. Try and sell your house if you live in Flint. The real estate has no value because no one wants to buy a house that doesn't have safe water. No one in South Florida will be able to buy or sell a house if there's no foundation of homeowner's insurance against future damage. And so, to me, a great way of connecting with the public is to have the water – the water people know all this. But sometimes, especially in the modern era, reporters need somebody to connect the dots. And I think um, being able to say to people, it's not just about this moment. Let's look at what's changing and let's look at how that connects to I, – I, I think, Cindy, the point you made about, about economic impact – and, and, and whether you're going to have a vibrant community or not, who, who's going to take their company to Flint right now, even if they want to, the people you would bring in to work in your company can't buy a house in Flint. And if they buy a house a year from now, who knows if they'll be able to sell it. And so water, that, there's being able to tell that bigger water story for reporters in your own town, in your own community, here's what it connects to. I think that's a way of getting people's attention when it comes to what needs to be done, you know, in terms of money and political will. Uh, absolutely fantastic discussion so far. I've, I'm really impressed with with uh, 
the, the perspectives that we've, we've heard from, from uh, Charles, Cindy, and Jeff. Now, we only have a couple minutes left in this, and so I, I'm just going to go kind of, you know, quote, around the vir- this virtual panel and just say, uh, ask you for just a, a very concise uh, thought on what, where you see us going from here out into 2018. So, uh, uh, Jeff, why don't we start with you? Uh, let us know what your thoughts on 2018 are. The end of 2017 has gotten incredibly dry after a record-breaking wet year, and it seems like more of the repeat. We're sliding back into drought, but it's too early to say that. So what we're looking at is continuing to try and invest and build. I'm actually here today in Las Vegas meeting with Arizona and Nevada trying to come up with a drought plan in which all three states are going to – find a methodology in which we would share the pain of a looming shortage on the Colorado River that we know is coming. It's a matter of when, not, not if. And we are also working in Northern California with the governor on his programmatic uh, California Water Fix, which is large-scale infrastructure designed to implement a strategy that we're calling Big Gulp, Small Sip. We know in these few wet years we get, we get these flashy uh, – these flashy, volatile, wet seasons, we're going to have to grab that and make use of it, and that's going to require investment. So we're engaged on both fronts in Northern California and on the Colorado River, uh, but it's going to take a lot of partnership and collaboration and hopefully some good work with a, a federal administration uh, understanding these issues. Terrific. So, Cindy, let's go to you. What, what do you see in 2018? I think it sums up many of the things that we've talked about earlier, and it's going to take collaboration and leadership in order for us to create a different future. You know, we're we're in the business of the future now, and water management is our science of tomorrow. And, and we have to look at things differently. We have to be holistic. We have to bring in many stakeholders. You know, we've mentioned many of them, utilities, financial solution providers, end users, because it, it is that leadership that we need and we need to have it visible as as others have mentioned and obviously Jeff you've been a a great example that's who's going to make the collaboration happen and that's going to let us get beyond the challenges to to drive positive outcomes and and that's just critical for us to be movement 2018 it has to have movement and that's going to take leadership and and I'm looking forward to being a part of that and seeing it Terrific. So, and Charles, why don't we conclude with, uh, with your thoughts on what 2018 holds? Well, I, I just want to say I hope, Jeff, you're inviting the reporters in and talking to them about what you guys are doing. And I love big gulp, small sip. I think cleverness goes a long way in getting people's attention, both in the media and, 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 and community members. So good on you for that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm holding in reserve what I think may be one of the most important developments of 2017, which will cascade into 2018. It's a little bit weedsy, but Moody's, which is the big bond rating agency that helps uh, investors decide whether to buy bonds from communities, uh, just two weeks ago announced that it was telling states, cities, municipalities, and counties that it was going to be rating preparedness as part of the rating that they gave the bonds. And the rating that Moody's and the other agencies give municipal bonds determines what the interest rate is and determines what the popularity of those bonds is and their saleability. So 
this is deep in the world of finance, but it ha it will have a direct impact. I'd rather spend money getting ready for climate change than not be able to sell the bonds I need to improve my roads, build more mass transit, uh, build water and sewer. And Moody's was Moody's the categories Moody's came up with to assess communities' readiness are right where they need to be. What percent? of the economic activity in this community is coastal and therefore at risk. What percent of the community is vulnerable to a hurricane or a megastorm and what level of damage would that do and what in, and, and are you ready to handle that? Um, what percent of homes are built in a floodplain and a floodplain whose assessment of danger may be uh, out of date? And so what Moody's is saying is you can't ignore this anymore. As a community, you're going to have to pay attention or you're not going to be able to do all the other business you want to do. And I hope that just pushes these issues and sort of thinking about them holistically right, right up the agenda. And, and I think I can, I can speak on behalf of probably both Jeff and Cindy when I say I sure hope 2018 is a quieter year in the natural disaster arena. <laughs> I think nature, nature made her point in 2017. We need a year to, you know, Houston, Miami, California need a year to, to, uh, recover a little bit. Well, very well said on, on all your behalf. I want to, I want to thank you as, as, as we conclude this. I want to thank you for a fantastic discussion today. Uh, and I, I know all of your time is very valuable and very scarce, and so I think it means a tremendous amount to me and to the listeners that, that each of you, uh, you know, took, took 40, 45 minutes out of your day uh, to talk about water issues. And so uh, for that, I thank you very much for your time and wish you all a happy holiday and a fantastic 2018. Thanks. Same to you. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that virtual panel with Charles Fishman, Cindy Wallace-Lage, and Jeff Keitlinger, I thought they were fantastic. And, and when you get uh, bright minds like that all uh, uh, bouncing ideas off each other and things like that, I think it just enhances the, the conversation. Even even those folks, uh, I think, saw things from different perspectives. And, and, you know, what one person said sparked an idea in someone else. And so I thought it was a, a really interesting conversation. And I'm really thankful uh, that all of them were able to, uh, to participate. I, I do want to point out that John Friedman of Suez Water was supposed to be on that, but we had some technical issues, and so we, we couldn't we couldn't get John uh, roped in. But he would be he w he would have uh, made that panel as as good as the panel was. I think John would have made it even better. But uh, we'll we'll get John on here in the near future uh, to talk about uh, uh, some of the things that he's doing and seeing in the water industry. But in any event, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 116. That's thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 116. Uh, leave a comment on the show notes. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you didn't like. Give us uh, feedback, how we can improve. We'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, as always, uh, you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. You can tweet at me using my, hash using my uh, handle at DTM1993. You can also go to thewatervalues.com and sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which comes out twice a month. I didn't send one out last podcast because work was just too busy, and I, it was all I could do just to get the podcast out. And I'm probably not going to send one out this uh, this time because I also have a lot going on, and um, I just don't think I'm going to be able to get to, to putting together the newsletter. But in any event, 
we only send the newsletter out twice a month, so sign up for the newsletter. It's simple, it's easy, and uh, get you a lot of, lots of information right in your inbox for free twice a month. Finally, I want to say thank you to everyone who's uh, rated and reviewed the podcast. Please consider doing so if you've been listening and enjoyed the podcast. We had one additional five-star rating in the last week or so. Uh, uh, no, no review, but thank you very much for whoever you are who gave us a five-star rating. Really appreciate it. Uh, finally, uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, also can, please consider making a donation to the Water Values Podcast. just helps defray the cost of putting this podcast on. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. And then I hope you all have a great Fantastic holiday season. I want to say thank you uh, to, to those folks who helped me get this thing done. Uh, really, that's, that's Lydia McWhorter. She does a great job doing the graphics, doing the, the little images that go with the podcast. She is fantastic. If, if, if you're out there in the water industry and you ever need a graphic designer, use Lydia. She's great. She's easy to work with. She does a fantastic job. It's timely. I, I can't say enough good things about Lydia, so, so please consider using her if you need to get in touch with her. Get in touch with me, and I'll put you in touch with Lydia. Uh, then I also want to say thank you to Veronica Serebriakova, who kind of does the, uh, the, the, the Facebook and LinkedIn sites for um, the Water Values. So I gr- greatly appreciate her efforts uh, to make the Water Values a success. So with that, I want to say thank you very much for another fantastic year. We'll see you in 2018. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.